So I'll just say a prayer before Barbara comes to do our reading of Psalm 38. So let us pray. Lord, you know where we all are as we stand before you, in joy or in anguish, confusion or in grief. Nothing is hidden from you. You see us all. So please speak to us through your word and through Dave as he comes to speak to us, to bring us your truth and your reality. And please minister to us, your people, in whatever way we need right now. Amen. So the reading today is Psalm 38, and you can find it on page 565 of your pew Bibles. Psalm of David, a petition. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbours stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I am like the deaf who cannot hear like the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who does not hear, whose mouth cannot offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I'm about to fall and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me my Lord and my Saviour. This is the word of the Lord. Barbara, thank you for that. And good morning, everybody. Uh, I, I want to, first of all, commend this congregation. 
for, for its love and tenderness and just, just being such lovely people. Because uh, the first service, um, I think it was nine people who thought the irony of a Tottenham supporter preaching on blessed are those who mourn uh, was not lost on them. And they took great joy in my present mourning state for my beloved football team uh, is, is heavy. It's really heavy. So if you want to support in any way, I'd be really grateful. But you, nobody said anything to me this service. So don't spoil it at the end, okay? Don't spoil it. Please don't spoil it, because I'm, I'm struggling with my football team. Now, that psalm, thank you, Barbara, for reading it so clearly to us. Um, it's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard to, to listen to and to, to understand? It wouldn't be one that you'd use, you know, to start a, a sort of session of praise and worship, would it? it it's not about that. And yet, um, we cannot ignore it, because it is... Uh, a psalm which we need to take seriously, particularly in the context of where we are at the moment in our series. Uh, and if you ignore it, you're, you're playing pick and mix with the Bible. So you, we have to take it seriously and look at it. The truth is there are more psalms, actually, in that kind of mood. Uh, one day, perhaps, we ought to go through and look at the different sort of psalms that there are. Um, and there are praise psalms, but there's, there's psalms like this, where, where a man, David, as it happens with this particular psalm, comes before God, uh, and he feels wretched, doesn't he? I mean, there's no way you can disguise that. The, the man feels absolutely wretched. Now, let's just remind you the context of where we are. We're in the Beatitudes. That's going to be our series for this term. Uh, these wonderful statements of Jesus, where he is telling his followers, his disciples, where they can find blessing, how they can experience blessing, what living is like in order to be blessed by the God who made them. And, and notice, in, if you look at the chapter 5, where the Beatitudes start in Matthew's Gospel, um, we see that they're away from crowds. This is not a crowd-gathering mob thing that Jesus had to deal with later. This is very much Jesus taking his disciples to a place where they could learn. And they needed to learn this. They needed to learn what we've been doing before we get to this, this area of the Beatitudes for this looking at the idea of the kingdom of heaven. What is this kingdom of heaven about? So he's teaching them, the close disciples, what it means to be part of that. And, and in every way, they need to know. They need to know the Jesus agenda. They need to know what he's about, what he's trying to do, what he's trying to achieve, where he's going, what it's all about. And, and if they don't get it, as they follow him around, they'll be going, what on earth is that about? What's, why is he doing that? And this is clearly Jesus trying to tell them what this kingdom is about. It's not about military power. It's not about political influence. It's not about conquering territory. It's about the people of God who, in their hearts, follow the king called Jesus. That's his kingdom. That's why Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. You can't sort of put a piece of line down on the earth somewhere and say, there's the kingdom of God. It's not like that. The kingdom of God is all over the world. It's where people who own Jesus as king and as savior uh, live and, and move and have their being. So it's important for us, too, this morning, when we look at this kind of stuff, and we'll be looking as we go through the Beatitudes, through this term, to, to know what kind of people we should be. What, what's this about? Where's, where's this going? And last week, you, you heard about being poor in spirit. 
Uh, and straight away, Jesus says, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For those people who say, there is no way I can see myself. Sarah Jane mentioned this, this sort of self-aggrandizement kind of thing. If we're there, we're not poor in spirit. We're saying we're bigger, we're greater, we're more important. And, and what Jesus is trying to do when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, is you need to realize that you are poverty-stricken people. Tough, isn't it? In other words, we're saying without God you can do nothing. Poor in spirit. And then we go on to this one, which we're looking at today. Blessed are those who mourn. Literally those who experience deep grief. That's what the word means. This is not some passing uh, sort of five-minute tearful interlude. This is very much feeling and sensing deep grief. Hardly the stuff of mighty kingdoms, is it? Just reflect on, on the fact that the Jews, in, in the course of the thousand years before Jesus, had experienced Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and were now under the roke of, of, of the Romans. They knew exactly what kingdoms were about. All those kingdoms had come and gone and passed, and then another one comes in, and so on and so on. The influence had been on them. And God's answer to that is, I want people who are poor in spirit and who mourn. What? That's a bit weird, isn't it? Oh, come on, Jesus, what we need is a, a military ruler. Get an army together. Let's chuck these Romans into the Mediterranean. Let's get on with this. But Jesus says, I want people who are poor in spirit and who are mourning. Now, when you read, blessed are those who mourn, you may say, of course, uh, well, of course they are, because God comforts those who've lost a loved one. Now, the Bible says plenty about that, but that's not what he's on about here. We must look at a, a broader picture than that and, and understand what the biblical meaning of mourning is. It's often coupled with weeping. James writes to the early church in chapter 4, verse 9, Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before and the Lord and he will lift you up. In Revelation 18, we read, weep and mourn and cry out. This is God's instruction for us to mourn. And it's not about mourning a loved one predominantly. Nor is it about lamenting over the world. I'm sure we all do that when you watch the box and you see some of the stuff that's coming out and you look at it and you think, oh boy, where's this world going? Mourn. Absolutely. Don't argue with you for a minute. But I don't think that's fundamentally what's going on here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's worldly sorrow that we just talked about. And now God is saying, okay, there's something else in here. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are taught to observe and respond to the deeds of other men in the world. We're told to do that. We're told to have an awareness of what's going on in the political arena and in the social arena. That's all part of it. And we should mourn and grieve when we see some of the things that go on there. But this kind of mourning is something different. As one commentator that I read wrote this, it is the sorrow 
that flows out in the tears that cleanse. It is the sorrow that flows out in the tears that cleanse. It's not about the state of the world. It's about me. It's about me. It's mourning my own sin and what it has done to me. And it's so closely connected to that first beatitude. When Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, it drives us. Not to say all is well, or, you know, the old Monty Python song, always look on the bright side of life. It is to take us to the place where we know that with ourselves all is not well. Now, this is not easy to preach, I tell you. And I wish I could do all the lovely things and send you home glowing and gorgeous. But I'm afraid we're going to have to go there if we're going to understand the second part of what Jesus teaches. Some people think that talking about sin is, is morbid, but the Bible, it's there from the beginning, isn't it? Almost. When sin comes into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve and finally is dealt with the end of Revelation. And constantly, you know I love this kind of stuff, but I'm going to mention it anyway because I know you like it. Uh, you see this in, in the history of Israel. You, you see the sin of the, of the nation and, and God must have thought, what are they up to now? I love that verse in, in Isaiah 8 where all sorts of things have been going wrong and the people have been doing all sorts of weird things like consulting soothsayers and mediums and spiritists. And, and Isaiah comes out and he says, should not a people inquire of their God? What are you playing at, Israel? And what we need to hear here is, is the idea that there must be from within ourselves a morning that says, I've been doing all the wrong things. I've done lots of wrong things. I've sinned before a holy God. And it's something which, unless we get down, will not come up again. You've heard me say that before. If we don't get down and realize the, the utter degradation of what it is to be a sinner, I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Now, I hate saying it, but it's true. It's what the Bible teaches. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm sort of wagging a finger at you and saying, I know what you've done, I know what you've done, I know what you've done. It's not like that at all. But there is something which came at the fall in Genesis 3 and has stayed a sort of kink in what human beings are like ever since. We have this propensity to do what is not what God wants. We have this ability to sin, which is what it is. It isn't just an action that you've been a naughty boy or a naughty girl, like when my son um, once stole a donut. Oh, what a naughty boy he was. That's nonsense. But the idea that built into me, which I can't do anything about by myself, is, is that ability to do things which displease God. And once we get that, then we're mourning. That, that's when we've got to get to. We've got to realize that sin is serious. You can't sort of say, you know, all these jokes, they really make me cross, actually, when I see comedians on television come out with the horns, you know, this is the devil. Ooh, isn't this funny? As if sin is something you can have a laugh about. It isn't. The fact that sin is embedded into who I am 
is something we've got to take seriously. Now, that's why we read Psalm 38. Uh, because if we look at Psalm 38, we'll get to comfort in a minute, by the way. So hang in there, all right? I'm getting there. But we have to do this stuff first before we get there. Verse 1, David is so aware that God knows him. Look at it. He says, O Lord, he addresses God personally. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. He knows that God knows him. And he is begging God not to rebuke him or be angry with him. He's saying, God, no, please, give me a break. Take it easy on me. And in verse 2, it's even more graphic. It's as if someone with a, a set of bow and arrows is above him, pinging them straight down to him. Ah, ouch. Just be sure when you get home, you read this psalm, and then you'll know I'm not making it up, all right? So that's the old thing. David, the writer, is mourning his own state. He knows what he's really like. And however painful it is, God wants us to face that same reality of sin in our lives. It's made us into the people we are, who, who do things and say things and neglect things and get things wrong. Unless you're unique, and you never have. But I know what that's like and always have. But there's something interesting in this early bit of the, the chapter. We'll, we'll move on through it later. There's two words that he uses there, rebuke and discipline, in verse 38, uh, chapter 38 and, and the first verse there. Now, both of those words imply an action. He is actually saying to God, rebuke me. And sometimes God has to do that with me. I'll point it at me, because when I point at you, there's three fingers pointing back at me. And God says, I rebuke you for that. That is something you should not have done. And what's more, he goes on, discipline, same root word as the word disciple. Oh, discipline is good. I discipline my kids, my three lovely, gorgeous boys, who are, of course, the model of perfection and behavior in every way possible. And if you believe that rubbish, you believe anything. Um, they had to be rebuked. Stop it. No. Why? Because I love them. Don't do that. Get in on time. I said 10 o'clock. I meant 10 o'clock. Why? Because I love them. And so this idea that God is, is some sort of vindictive killjoy is rubbish. Uh, it's not what he is. But he is saying here, David, that this, the whole of my body has been affected. There's no health in my body, verse 3. My bones have no soundness. My body's lost all its strength. Verse 4, he's overwhelmed by guilt. Verse 7, he has searing back pain. Many of you know what that's like. I bet you didn't know it was in the Bible, though. There it is, verse 7. Verse 8, feeble and utterly crushed. His whole body and mind appear to be broken. And yet, in verse 6, what do we see? We see that word, mourning. In amongst all his feeling of oppression, of body, mind, spirit, later on we read about the relationships um, that, have, that have gone wrong. My friends and companions avoid me. Um, those who seek my life set their traps. I'm like a deaf man. I can't communicate. Uh, I can't hear. Uh, uh, everything about me is not working. I become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. But, he says the next thing. He knows, in this state, 
where he needs to go. For I am about to fall, he summarizes it in verse 17. My pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many of those who are my vigorous enemies, those who hate me without reason, are numerous. I'm still surrounded by it, but look at the end of the psalm. Oh Lord, that's where he goes. Oh Lord, do not forsake me. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly to help me, O my Savior. David has mourned his sin. It's obviously weighed heavy. It's affected him as a person in every conceivable way. As Barbara read those 21 verses, you got over and over and over again the, the ways in which his bodily functions had been challenged. And if I'm going to experience what comes later, I have to mourn me. I have to look into my heart and say, before God, I am a sinner. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will cleanse us from our sin and renew us in every way. I have to experience that morning if I'm to go on to the last bit. Only a few years ago, my wife, and she's going to kill me for this, I know. Uh, she knows what's coming because thousands of people at 9.30 told her what I said at 9.30, so they, they've got it. My wife jumped off a bridge in New Zealand. Um, she has a certificate in her study to prove it. It's got a name on it. She's very proud of it. I saw her do it. I went to the river at the bottom, 45 meters below, I think it was, and uh, there I took pictures very faithfully of my wife flying through the air like a swallow. Lovely image, lovely picture. Uh, she was attached to a bit of elastic. I, didn't, I missed that bit out. Sorry, that's kind of painful if you don't do that. Um, but I have no idea what that feels like. Not a clue. I saw it. I witnessed it. I praised it. I heard about it afterwards, just for a few days. And, and I... I don't know what it feels like. I don't know what it feels like to stand there with a bit of elastic around your legs and you walk out onto this, this thing and then you go, wee into the midair. I don't know what it feels like. You see, un until you get to that point of mourning, you won't know what's coming next. That's the comfort. We, we have to experience it. We have to go into it we know what it's like, and it comes from our desire to see our sin dealt with, an awareness that we are nothing without God. And, and Jesus came to, to bring those good news. Isaiah prophesied it, console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. But if there's no mourning, there's no comfort. It can't be, because we think we're okay. We need to understand we're not. And despite our sinfulness, my friends, if there is genuine repentance, 
there will be that comfort from the God who loves us. It's because he loves us that he wants us to go to the place of mourning because then we can go deeper. And if we don't go there, we won't. He wants us to know the joy of living with that sin dealt with. And what is the comfort? Well, I could spend a lot of time on this, but I mustn't. There's first of all the comfort of knowing that we live in a world that God created and he is still sovereign over it. Whatever men might try to do and play around with, there is still the sovereignty of God in our world. We need not fear. God is in control. It may not appear that at times, but it is true. We know that Jesus died. That's comfortable words. We say that, don't we, at the communion service, the comfortable words. We know that Jesus died to deal with the very problem we're talking about. That he should lead us from mourning to know the comfort of a living Savior. That, that's fantastic news. But we won't get it until we get down and realize the state of our sinfulness. We know that his Holy Spirit will be with us to convict us of our sin, yes, but will be with us every single minute of every single day that we live on this planet. And one day, one day, we will go to be with him forever. Yeah. Banquet time, friends. Banquet time. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that not a comfort? What do we do here at funerals every time we do one? We talk about that. Why? Because it's a comfort. It's a wonderful idea that, that this was something. And if we've, res if we've restored our relationship with, with the Father, yes, the Holy Spirit will convict us, but we have a future hope. We have something to look forward to if we stay in that relationship with our Father. I think I've told you this before, but uh, it bears repeating, I think. When I was a very young lad, um, I was a cricket freak. Now, some of you know me well, know that I'm still a cricket freak. I can't help myself. It's something that I need help with, probably, but I, there we go. One day when I was a little boy, uh, I'd watched England play, and I was expecting any time soon a call from the management. Uh, Dear Dave, we need you at the Oval, you know, or something like it. Uh, I thought that would be great, wouldn't it be lovely? So I went, after I'd watched England play, to the bottom of my garden. Why I went that way, towards the house, rather than away from the house, I'm not sure, but I did. I went to the bottom of the garden, I ran down the path, and I let fly one of these absolute fizzers that I could bowl in those days. Uh, unfortunately, it was slightly wider of the target than I would have liked, and went straight through next door's window. Um, and Mr. Reynolds, the name is imprinted in my brain, I can't help it, but I, I was probably about eight, I think, nine, something like that. And uh, Mr. Reynolds came out, less than a happy bunny. Uh, I want to see your dad. And I thought, oh dear, here we go. Um, so I stood there looking innocent. And uh, dad said to me, you did that. I said, wasn't me. I stood there and thought, I'm, I'm going to get away with this. I'm going to get away with this. Fantastic. And my wise dad said to me, Dave, go to your room. Think about it. And I did. Next day, he comes home from mending Her Majesty's ships. He says to me again, Dave, you got something to tell me? Nope, want me. And I can still feel I could take you to the place in my old house in Gillingham, Kent, where I lived, 
when my dad came through the door and he looked me straight in the eye and I said to him, Dad, I did it. Now he knew, because there was, you know, there was hardly sort of 15 fellow bowlers in the garden, you know, so it was probably going to be me. It couldn't have been anybody else. And uh, I got pocket money docked. I had to pay for it. But the most important thing was that my relationship with my beloved dad was restored. Do you see it? Mourning happened. And I said, sorry for what I'd done that was wicked. I was back in fellowship with a dad that I loved and who spent many hours bowling at me in a backyard to get me better at cricket. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I had to come to my dad and say sorry, not just for my wayward delivery, but for the fact that I tried to cover it up and I was restored. My dear friends, kingdom people mourn their sinfulness. They know that they're sinners, but they come with that mourning to the presence of a Savior who brings comfort, of a Savior who says, you're restored. And perhaps this morning, some of you are in, in situations, I don't know, and you're in a place where there's, there's still that sense of sin undealt with. That's not a good place to be, folks. It's not a good place to be. Needs sorting. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment, and if you feel that that's for you, then say quietly, amen, at the end of it, and maybe spend some time thinking later today or during the week of unconfessed sin, sins that are holding you down. And sin does hold you down, doesn't it? It grips hold of you. And the glorious, glorious, glorious good news is that those who mourn should be released, should be comforted. And we can go out and serve God and deepen our relationship with the Father who loves them and the Savior who died and rose again and the Spirit who lives in you day by day. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with that, hopefully, a deep sense of, of an awareness of, of our sinfulness that we are before you as a holy God those who sinned grievously in so many ways. Thank you, Lord, so much that if we get to that place, then we can know the comfort of a Savior who is eternal, who loves, who has plans for us to prosper us, not to harm us, that has promised us an eternal place in glory and, and wants us to be there, wants us to be in the place of mourning that we might have the joy and the comfort, not just of an earthly dad, but a father who says, you are my son. Father, take us there, please. Take us to a place of deep repentance, 
knowing that we are, yes, poor in spirit, and we mourn that. But we have the promise that we will be people who are part of the kingdom. And we have the promise of the comfort of a Savior who died and rose again and now lives in the glory of heaven. Please, Lord, teach us that pathway and help us not to wander off it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.